welcome to Sci-Fi Cross-Sections. This is a podcast dedicated to everything sci-fi, be it film, television, books, video games. We'll talk about it, we'll dissect it, and tell you what we think about it. Welcome to episode uh, 12, is it, Mark? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. I think it's episode 12, maybe. Lost episode. Mayhaps. Uh, And today we are talking about The Thing. Uh, which came out in 1982. Uh, who's here today? Mark. Matt. Jason. It's your boy, Wes Craven, director of the th- that thingy. <laughs> Andrew W.S. Miller. Yeah, it's me, Andrew. How are you? Uh, and uh, it's me, uh, Colin. Jason, could you give a quick and concise uh, synopsis of the thing? Uh, the Thing. So The Thing is a science fiction horror film set in Antarctica, Antarctica, um, uh, involving researchers at a research base, but they're blue-collar researchers, very much in the alien mold. Long um, hair, beard. Long hair, beard, yeah. like <clears throat> a lot of us in this room right now. Um, <clears throat> the movie starts in Res. We don't know what's going on, but we see a helicopter chasing a wolf-like dog um, into the U.S. research facility. Um, they seem like the uh, people that are in the helicopter are, uh, uh, they do not speak English very well, if at all, and start opening fire at the workers in the U.S. research base, prompting the U.S. research base workers to kill the remaining person. Anyway, some stuff happens involving a thing, and uh, they are left to kind of decide who potentially may be the alien menace and who is still human, which leads to some infighting and questions in regards to who is who, do they um, appear to be who they say they are, or are they something else? Have they become a thing? Um, the movie goes through <clears throat> several different scenarios in trying to discover who may or may not be infected, uh, ultimately leading uh, to the end scene, which I think is one of the best scenes in a horror film ever, uh, with <clears throat> two of the main characters standing together in the darkness looking at each other on the burning base, and you don't really know who's who. And you won't know who's who. And that's how the movie ends. That's the thing. Yeah. I don't synopsize, but uh, I feel like that was better than... I a, feel like... Better than I usually Well, normally do. you're actually just reenacting, you know, the movie scene by scene. But that was actually pretty good. Okay. I liked it. I liked that you focused on the dog, too. I like that. Nice. Mm-hmm. I just kind of want to start off, and... I mean, we've all kind of just grown up with this movie. I would suppose it's all... It's about... We ten, all just grew up. Well, it's, it's about ten years older than most of us here. So. I actually was Kurt Russell in the movie. I, I, I had a feeling, but I wasn't going to say anything. Um, it's true. I actually played his hair double. I believe it. No, I mean... <laughs> this movie used to scare the shit out of me when I was a little kid. Rightfully so. Um, I mean, yeah. the practical is... Oh, it's... it's, it's you know, if it, was, if it was CGI, it probably wouldn't have bothered me so much. But because it was all practical effects... 
it it really just bothered the hell out of me. And it wasn't until I was much older that I could watch it and appreciate it for what it actually was. Um, before, it was just a scary movie, but now there's a lot of themes that I've picked up on that I'm older that I didn't really quite get before. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's been the thing. <laughs> that's been the thing with the thing for me for a very long time is that as we kind of covered in some of our other discussions of some classic horror movies um, being like, you know, Alien to a lesser extent, Event Horizon, the thing has a really cool premise. And to me, I love that it's, you know, Antarctica, complete isolation, very, you know, inhospitable environment. It's sub-zero temperatures, it's snowing, you know, they're in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, really, these guys are, you know, their entire existence for however long their, you know, uh, I guess, uh, service would be, is the other people that are around them. So you strike up friendships, and, you know, there's, I'm sure, a lot of cabin fever and everything else that goes along with being isolated like that, literally being on the moon, more or less, because that's basically what they are. And um, I thought that that was just, not only is the setting really cool, but then what they go ahead and do with it, and, you know, they, I don't know, they kind of make it where it, it, the environment itself is another character, but then you think like, oh, okay, I'm with all these people that are my friends that I can trust. Oh, wait, no, I can't. And to me, that's the genius of the movie. I wish you kind of had more movies that played upon... Um, the casts, you know, maybe mistrust or distrust of each other uh, for for some, you know, outside, I guess, reason or some outside influence that kind of comes in and breaks up the dynamics of the group. So that's kind of what I, I enjoy watching it and kind of being able to bring that out now. Because like you said, Colin, when I first saw the movie years and years ago, I was just, oh, you know, monsters, blah, 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 and you can't, couldn't really understand it on that level so you know doing any viewing in the last five or six years now you can kind of pick up on those themes and it's 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 good it's honestly the the biggest one i took away from it in a way was uh it, it's sort of just like a, a critique on uh mccarthyism and people are kind of accusing yeah. each other of being the thing and it's usually the person they like least in the group kind of pointing out Twelve angry things. Yeah. Do you ever think of that? Also, as you were talking, it just kind of hit me. But did anyone here see uh, the Hateful Eight? Oh yeah. 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 It's kind of like the thing. If you actually stop and look, think about it for a mm -hmm. little bit. Yeah. Kind of does the same character examination as like Tarantino, you know, yeah. would do. Or I guess Tarantino did the same type of thing as you know John Carpenter did. The but, thing. Yeah, it's just, um, I don't know, it's 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 cool because, well, to piggyback off that, that, that's what really blew me away. So we watch this movie now, and we watch it, you know, admirably. We love the themes of it, we love the setting, we love the effects, we love everything about this movie. It's kind of gone down as a, not even a cult classic, I would just say it's a classic horror film now. Yeah. But when this movie came out, it was panned. It was a critical and commercial failure, and John Carpenter was, like, really <clears throat> tore up for a long time about, you know, this, because he had so much, <clears throat> so much, like, creativity that he put into this and, like, trying to make it 
you know, just a, a his, I'm going to say like passion piece, but at the time it was like his, you know, I'm really proud of this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it just didn't go over well. And it's, it's interesting to me that in all the intervening years now, it's come to be viewed as this, you know, classic horror movie. When at the time, you know, what, what was the first thing we just picked out? It was the effects and how good the effects are and, you know, how much they're still to this day, they hold up, you know, geez, almost 40 years later. And we still like, wow, you know, it's just done so well. But the effects, you know, I was reading reviews from that era and the effects were criticized for being too good. Whoa. They were, <laughs> they were criticized in a negative way for being too good. They weren't like, oh, this is, you know, wow, you know, it's like reality. It was like, this is disgusting. It's grotesque. It's just too much. And that blew me away because I think that that's one of the things that's made the movie hold up through the, the, you know, the eras here as we've, we've gone on, like it's still extremely well done. It holds, holds up to anything that has been released in this kind of modern era era. And I feel like you need that. You need that grotesque to remind you of the thing itself. Because it becomes so entangled in this plot of accusations and defense and nobody knows what's going on. And it's just this panic between the characters. And then something grotesque happens and it draws all of the rest of the people back together to deal with it for that moment. And I feel like without that stark contrast, it wouldn't, you know, it would get too sucked up in itself as far as the plot and like the, the you know, the hint towards like McCarthyism and, you know, everybody being at each other's throats and throwing accusations. It would get lost in that and not really get to play upon the sci-fi aspects. So they need that to like pull you back out of it. And I think that's one of my favorite things about it is that it has such a huge jump back and forth. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, it's the lift up from the darkness of like them being at each other's throats, which is funny because it's a monster that's mm-hmm. horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mark, the effects, yeah, the effects are one of my favorite parts of the movie as well. Growing up, they were, uh, I just, I was fascinated by them. the The concept of the movie freaked me out when I was younger, but like the effects were just always really cool to me. They're freaky. And they they definitely are unsettling, you know, at any age. But uh, I I recently was looking into it. I wish I could remember exactly how it went. But I think it was the basically like apprentice of the effects master for this movie went on to do American Werewolf in London. That was you know another one of the most like renowned effects artists. Oh yeah, the werewolf transformation scene in that movie is insane. Absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, yeah, you can definitely see like a distinct influence between like look at the look at these crazy monster transformations. Like you've got people going from normal to oh, there's a big mouth coming out. Like that, this guy's stomach's a big mouth. Yeah, it's just seamless. Yeah, and and that was kind of you know that harkens back to I guess the argument. Um, to be made for practical effects versus CGI. And, you know, CGI having its place, but also not being, in a lot of cases, a good um, uh, stand-in for practical, if it can be done practical. We've seen a lot of movies that, 
you know, have recently come out that have gone back to, in some way, shape, or form, practical effects, and it's been, you know, kind of like a a, a strength of the movie, like you know, episode Max. seven. Mad Max is the ultimate, ultimate, I think. But, like, yeah, you couldn't have done, even though it's not sci-fi, you couldn't have, well, kind of is sci-fi, you couldn't have done Mad Max Fury Road without practical effects. Mm -hmm. No point in even watching that. Right. You know, it it had to be practical. But, you know, to an extent, too, like I just said, like, episode seven, you know, there's a lot of that was practical, and you could tell. And it kind of grounded it more. Um to that end, I feel like if you're you're making a horror film, if you can have the monster there physically on set for your actors to kind of play off of and react to, and it's not, you know, some guy in a green morph suit running around or like they're just, okay, imagine this really scary alien dude with, you know, a mouth in its stomach and like little tentacle things and, you know, if you can actually show the actor that, then, you know, you're going to get a more genuine reaction or a more yeah. genuine performance. And that's why I, I think the movie still holds up, or one of the reasons it still holds up. And it's just, they're, they're very well done effects. You know, they weren't cheesy. I mean, there's practical effects that, if not done well, like, that's just as bad as bad CGI. Yeah. Like, you're not going to believe it. It's a guy in a, you know, a monkey suit or something like that, you know, but... <laughs> The thing, I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's it's the pinnacle of really high-end, yeah. well-done practical effects that still hold up. The the uh, prequel, um, I I haven't seen it, so I can't I can't say how harshly it affects the movie. But I was watching uh, some like behind-the-scenes stuff. They had actually made props and and designed everything out and gotten it all set up and ready to go for practical effects for the entire the entire film and then last minute they decided to just go ahead and, and CGI it all in. They had fully fleshed out like real made practical effects for all of the monsters and stuff and they just eh, we'll, we're just, we'll just CGI it and they did, they exactly replicated all of it in the CGI. It looks identical. Well, they just didn't I'm glad you brought that up because if you didn't, I was going to because I did a lot of research on that. I read a lot of articles because what Mark's referring to is in 2011, they kind of did a pre-boot, pre-boot, a pre-boot, pre-boot, whereas they they were trying to kind of make good on the basic premise of the original 82, the thing, but also, which I think in a lot of ways is genius, tell the story of the Norwegian base yeah so the thing 2011 if you watch it it seamlessly goes right into the beginning of the 82 thing like they recreated everything in that opening credit sequence in the 1982 the thing like you can literally watch that movie watch the prequel and it goes right into it and everything makes sense you know it doesn't it's not media res anymore it's you know you're just picking up where the story left off which i think was great but like you said and it just blew my mind. Not only did they create those practical effects, they filmed them. They filmed the entire movie practical. And when they showed it to the studio executives, and I think it's Warner Brothers, when they showed it to the studio executives, they said, no way, it looks like a bad 80s horror movie. And they retraced, they just digitally traced 
CGI over the top of the practical effects. So every scene you watch in the prequel thing, you're watching a practical effect that has been, you know, doctored, basically, with CGI. And it just kills me because so many things are good about that movie, but that's the one thing that everyone criticized was the, the CGI because it, it doesn't have the same effect. I think a lot of those transformations and things that they did, if they would have kept them practical, they would have had that same type of vibe that the original The Thing did. Like, it wouldn't have been the same because the prequel film is not as good of a movie. Like, the writing is not as good, the atmosphere is not as good, the pacing is not as good. But it would have been more consistent with the original movie had they just stayed the course. But they didn't, and it kills me. And the number one thing you will find if you look that up, if you just Google search The Thing 2011 bad CGI, people have started petitions to the studio to try to get them to release a you know, practical version of the film because it's kind of become a cult thing. Like people want to see it. They want to see like the work prints of it without any CGI just to see, you know, these effects. And I've seen some set photos that they took that they had hired a company, you know, and they paid them and and did did everything. And their work was in the film. And like, they've just made these awesome practical effects. Like they're all slimy and, you know, drippy and they look just like, you know, something straight out of the 82 original. And they just, you don't see any of that stuff in the the finished product. Mm. So it's kind of a shame. It's like, because that's the point here. Like, that's why the movie holds up so well is because they they did that. And they did it out of necessity. Who knows if that technology would have existed in 82, if they, they would have gone that route. I would like to think no. But, you know, who knows? I mean, they did it out of uh, a need to rather than maybe a want to or a desire to. But... Now it's like the gold standard for that type of, you know, design or, or movie. Um, so, yeah. I just can't believe, like, why wouldn't they want to release at least in a, a copy of the film where you could just, like, you know, like a subtitles or something, just, like, turn off the CGI. It's right there. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. Like, they, they yeah. edited it a certain way. Or, like, they would have to go back through and, like, re-edit the film. Not, like, cut things, but, you know, like, take the original footage and, like, you know, basically dial it back from what they, all the work they did. And then, like, re-edit the, like, cell by cell. Exactly. Yeah. Go through. There's probably a lot of color balancing, a lot of a lot of final touch stuff that they would have to completely redo if they were to, to like, go to an earlier cut. It really boggles my mind. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a related tangent, but, um, you know, the, the motivation behind this, you know, the bottom line, you know, the, 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 the executives, the studio executives are like, you know, we need to make the most amount of money, you know, and it's like, you know, we're, we're aficionados, you know, where you've got the critics who are, you know, paid to look at this stuff, but you got to wonder, does the CG really breach the broadest audience? Like, you know, if you if you ask, you know, Joe Schmo coming out of the movie in 2011, like, what do you think of the thing? He's like, wow, that was amazing. The special effects were crazy. And then you show him the 82 thing. What do you what is he really going to like the CG version better? You know, and I mean, if it's an issue of it, it can't be an issue of 
we're going to shoot the, you know, do we shoot practically or digitally? Because you've already shot the scenes practically. It's already done. You've already paid the company to come in and build these creatures. It's the money spent. So now you're going to pay another company or pay somebody else to do it all digitally. Like you are like really like mm. doubling down on the shit here. <laughs> like, especially cause good CGI is very expensive. Oh yeah. So it's either they're banking on this CGI, making the movie so much better that it's worth it. Or they're just paying people to have bad CGI. Exactly. Yeah. But that's kind of what happened in the 2011 The Thing. Because you, know, you spent your special effects budget on doing the special <laughs> effects yeah, twice. Yeah, exactly. And the CGI, I mean, you know, that's kind of one of the criticisms you see levied at it is that, you know, it, it's this really cool, like, story and, you know, the, the performances are good and everything else, but it looks like, you know, sci-fi channel original movie. Yeah, like, do you want it to CGI. look good or do you want it to look like a scanner darkly? That's literally why I haven't seen it yet. Well, you know, I, I watched it again in preparation for this just because I remember watching it in 2011. I didn't go see it in theaters, but as soon as the Blu-ray came out, I rented it, I watched it, and I was just blown away initially at all of the little details that they added. Like, the way that they created the prequel thing was they, they went, and, and they even said they uh, in, in one of the... Um, you know, uh, commentaries that they approached the original 82, the thing as like, they were like forensic investigators at a crime scene. Like the way the, you know, the scene was shot, you know, you see the scene where, um, like Kurt Russell's character walks down the hallway and there's an ax in the doorway. Well, they made a note of that. And based off of how everything was laid out in those scenes, they created that Norwegian base. Um, I think, uh, cause like we were watching it and, and I, I told Colin, I was like, check this out, you know, when, when this scene happens and they go into, after they take the alien out of the ice and they put it in that room, like they recreated that room, like down to like the janky, like two by fours that they use for the railing and the wood paneling on the walls. And like, it was the same room where the alien burst out of the ice, like, you know, and you had the. Uh, parts of the roof hanging down, like cables and everything else. They recreated that to the T. They explain how the axe got in the wall. They explain how, you know, the, the one character they find in the chair with his, you know, his uh, wrist, wrist cut, slit yeah. and everything else like that. Like, they cover it. Like, they explain all that stuff. And to me, that was a really cool way to kind of go about making a prequel. Because here you've got this really strong, um, I guess, like, really strong subject that kind of started in this way that always made people go, well, that's interesting. Like what happened before that? Like who are those guys in the helicopter? Like what happened at the Norwegian base? Yeah. But it was never like really explained. Like no one, you know, there was, you know, I'm sure probably fan fiction or maybe a comic or something like that, that someone came up with, but like to develop something like that, that many years later and still have it be more or less pretty seamless and explain a lot of things in more or less satisfying way was cool. Like it was really, I mean, it, it, you couldn't do that with every property because I don't think every property gives you as much leeway yeah. or as much of a good foundation as the thing, 82 thing. 
did for the 2011 one. So the story itself was really cool and well done, but it was just the biggest part of it, which is the creature, they botched. They just, they botched it. Maybe they had good intentions initially, but... Um, and how do you guys feel about, uh, John Carpenter? <laughs> I mean, I, I've never really been his biggest fan, to be honest. Really? No. Uh, I liked, I, I shouldn't say I liked, but, uh, I was entertained by, you know, Escape from New York and Escape from LA. I yeah. uh, never was a Halloween fan. What? It's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Speaking of um, Halloween, this is the Halloween episode. Maybe. Well, it might it might go it might go up by like Christmas or so. Oh well I mean it's cold, you know. (laughs) Baby it's Halloween outside. They live in the great. Nah I mean I'm not I'm just not his biggest fan, but I would have to say the thing is my favorite John Carpenter film. That's fair. Yeah. yeah, Um, I'd probably say that. He was a consultant on Fear Three. Oh. Well, I think he also did some voice work for Yu-Gi-Oh! So let's keep, let's keep going. <laughs> um, I also would say I love the cast. Um, Wilford Brimley. I mean, he's like one of my oh, favorite yeah. actors. But, yeah. Uh, Ice Ice Brimley. Ice Ice Brimley. <laughs> no, but Kurt Russell. What a choice. I don't even think he was acting. What a beard. I don't think he had a script. I think they just put Kurt Russell there, and that's how he reacted to the situation. And they just had cameras rolling. We went back and rewatched the scene, not not necessarily by our choice, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, rewatched the scene uh, about six times where he goes into the, the kitchen, gets a beer out of the fridge, <laughs> and, and, then he, and then all of a sudden he hears the it's the you know an outside perspective of when the he hears all the dogs barking. the dogs are barking and going nuts because the the dog that's infected is in there. Well, the dog that is recreation of a dog is in there and it's starting to uh, unsettle the dogs. And he hears the dogs going nutso in there. And uh, and he just takes his beer and he breaks the smashes the, the fire alarm with the beer. <laughs> we, we all just lost it. We watched it so many times because my Blu-ray kept skipping. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that reminds me of the one thing that after rewatching it enough times, I finally noticed, and it kind of bothered me, was immediately after that scene, before anybody even sees the monster, apparently they asked for the flamethrower. So they just heard the dogs bark, and they knew something was wrong, and it was like, get the flamethrower. Come on, advance the plot already. (laughs) Here's the thing, is I think Kurt Russell said that was because when they went to... The uh, Norwegian base, mm. the monster-ish grotesque they found was crisp. Yeah, it was burnt. burnt. That's true. That's yeah, true. You that's know, fair. so he was just like, "Oh, maybe that's what they did to to win." They huh. they burned. Just it. another reason Kurt Russell is a total badass. Yeah, he knew it before even I knew it. Yeah, except he's terrible at chess. <laughs> oh, he's, you try to beat a chess machine. He's terrible at chess, but he's great at whiskey. <laughs> Me too. He gave that chess robot what for? <laughs> I want a chess robot. For to write in its no. processor. What? What to? What for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but there was some other. Uh, 
<laughs> Thanks, Mark. There's some uh, Keith David. Big fan of Keith David. Oh yeah, he's. I, if, uh, have you seen a the young Live? Keith David? Yeah. Yes. Amazing movie. Did Roddy Roddy Piper. Did you ever play uh, Mass Effect one, two, or three? This I is a dumb question because I should know this, but I'm drawing a blank and I don't have a any type of media in front of me. That was a, a Carpenter movie, wasn't it? Uh, actually, I believe it is. If I uh, if I'm not because mistaken. when we're talking about John Carpenter, I was going to bring that up, but I didn't want to sound ignorant. What? I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's a John Carpenter movie. It's too, it's too late. They live. they live. They live. Yeah, yeah. I said that like absolutely. He yeah. was like Johnny Carperoni. He was like, I've never been a big fan of John it Carpenter. Is. I said, I love They Live. Oh, I didn't catch that, but I try not to listen to you uh, whenever you talk. Good choice. Um, we also suggest either. that for all listeners, but. Well, no, so, like... I actually just cut myself out of the podcast when I'm doing editing. <laughs> so Everyone else is telling me. No one knows what you're talking about. I don't even exist in the podcast, really. I think really. John Carpenter... I know we're talking about Keith David, but I'm too little John Carpenter aside now that I've confirmed <laughs> that they live as John Carpenter. Like, that, to me, is John Carpenter's thing, or it was his thing, when he was still kind of in his prime as a filmmaker. He was making these movies that would be kind of construed as like a mainstream, you know, horror movie, or a mainstream science fiction movie, or, you know, mainstream action movie, but he was kind of imbuing them with, like, kind of the big ideas. So you've got, like, the thing where, you know, like you said, McCarthyism, and that whole type of, uh, you know, uh, it, who's your neighbor? You know, is your neighbor a good person? Is he the enemy? You know, that type of uh, uh, monsters are due on Maple Street and all that sort of stuff. Like, you, you have that vibe. Then you have They Live, which is all just kind of a riff on, like, consumerism and, you know, just blindly believing whatever they're selling you, you know, they. And then, you know, like uh, Escape from New York, you know, kind of imagining this, like, dystopian, you know, future um, where you've got just massive, you know, prison cities and all this other stuff. Like, it's, yeah, a lot of it is kind of cheesy in the way that it's done, and those movies are very dated to the decade that they came out in. Oh, yeah. But they're they're cool ideas. I mean, he was trying to do something different, which I can give yeah. him credit for. But um, I think the cast was just absolutely phenomenal uh, because you believe, you believe everyone that's on that base in, in, in a way it's like i don't want to say it's like poor man's alien because that sounds bad but like it, it is, is. It's, it's the same type of it's the same type of cast um it's the every man working man you know none of those guys are no highfalutin scientists or anything like that except the few that are but like they're still <laughs> kind of you know more yeah. grounded and they're not you know the one guy who with like paramilitary training kind of thing he's like an older guy who's still jumpy like there's nobody who feels confident in what they're doing it's either aggression or fear that's pushing everybody to do what they're doing except for wilford brimley which, which no i guess that was a lot of fear that was a lot of fear him running <laughs> his motivation's diabetes so. no yeah you know, he punched punched a few numbers and then it told him how fast the entire world population would be infected by this Virus. Hey, ten hours. Man, computers were crazy in 1980. <laughs> they, they could do some crazy. You shit. think they're crazy now? <laughs> they could have gotten worse since. Then. You should have seen the Commodore 64. <laughs> Goddamn Windows 10. <laughs> Ruining it. Um, doesn't even have chess on it. 
Uh, did anyone like notice anything about the score that stood out to them, or would you no. say it was pretty standard? Uh... <laughs> I scored by watching score. this movie. It's no, an Ennio Morricone score, which a lot of people overlook, but it's phenomenal. That is, it's, that is most standout work. Well, no, it is though if you think about it, because one of the things that he did in this, um, myself being a soundtrack guy, everything has a theme, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, you don't really see that much in movies anymore, but no, everything no. has a theme. And what I think was interesting is, and uh, a lot of uh, things have been kind of like written about it, this was Ennio Morricone creating a score for a film. To Ennio's, Ennio's father, right? Uh, yes. Someone, you know, no one told him, oh, do, you know, Spaghetti Western or do like, you know, uh, Ecstasy of Gold or whatever. It was... John Carpenter basically telling him, I have these ideas, musical ideas, you know, this really stripped down kind of bare bones stuff, you know, the heartbeat, the, you know, that type of stuff. And Ennio Morricone doing that, like being very minimalistic. And that was John Carpenter's influence because, you know, as you guys may or may not know, he did a lot of the music in the movies he directed. Like yeah. he was, yeah. he's got several albums oh, yeah. out that's just him. Yeah, exactly. So but, I thought that was kind of cool. Like, in fact, you've he's, got he's done the score for more things than he's actually directed. Or yeah, movie. looking at yeah. his filmography, his IMDb page. Yeah, yeah, which is cool. Like you know, you've got this acclaimed composer, like widely regarded as one of the greatest composers in film. Oh yeah, and you know, he's just kind of taking cues from. You know, John Carpenter, who I, I would say, you know, no let like, in terms of musical talent, like, you know, he knows what he wants. He's got a very particular sound, but um, it's just kind of cool. It was like definitely a collaboration of those two musical kind of forces together to make this really minimalistic, kind of unsettling, atmospheric mm -hmm. type score, mm -hmm. um, which is another thing that they <laughs> tried and failed to do um, in the prequel. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That's about right. So, what do you, what do you guys think? Uh, Jason was making a point. I, think you're I was making a point, but the point is gone. <laughs> Got it. Uh, Miller. Yes. Would you say this was good sci-fi or bad sci-fi? Oh, my lord. Let me, let me tell you. This is, um, I, I think I've rated pretty much every sci-fi um, I've been an episode. Every every sci-fi you know, uh, for every episode I've been on is pretty great sci-fi. But this is uh, this is like top tier horror sci-fi. You you know you've got you know Kurt Russell's acting chops with um, Wilford Brimley with Wilford Brimley's <laughs> diabetes chops, um, and then when you combine those two chops with um, John Carpenter's directing chops. It's uh wait. So there's three chops. There's three. Right? There's three main chops. <laughs> at least three. There's at least so you've got yeah you've got these three main chops. Did anyone in the movie have mutton chops? Uh, a lot of beards. I don't think any mutton chops. Uh, did not Wilfred Brimley have? No, sideburns? he was pretty much shaven. Yeah, clean shaven. Hmm. He had a mustache. I him. mean, lots of people have sideburns. <laughs> you got Ennio's musical chops. Yeah, Ennio's. Yeah, Ennio's music chops. Um, it's just, it, it knocks it out of the park, you know. It, the, 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 you don't want to say it chops it out of the park. It chops it out of the, it takes a flamethrower to mediocrity. 
Those dog chops were pretty sweet. <laughs> okay. So, so <laughs> yes, it's it's absolutely top tier. All right. Uh, Jason. I agree wholeheartedly with Miller there. It's uh, fantastic sci-fi. Magnanimous. Boisterous sci-fi. Magnanimous. It, it is. It, it truly is because... It, it's an exploration of a theme, which is what good sci-fi is, Yes. and it does that very well. But it's also a good example of, as you said, horror sci-fi. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the best examples. I think it's uh, you know it, it isn't regarded. I don't think as uh, like ubiquitously with like an alien as like a classic of cinema. But in terms of a science fiction horror film it's right up there i'd put it right right up there with alien just for what it accomplished and what it tried to do and the setting the atmosphere everything so it's fanciful sci-fi that's some uh it's pretty high praise there yeah matt i would say it's very good sci-fi it's it's a movie that i remember more the horror themes of it but after watching it enough times you really do catch all the little extra things they add that, in my mind, make a good sci-fi. All the little hints toward the alien stuff, all of the trying to learn more about it, the adding a little more science to it, it kind of, you know, I don't know, it creates more of a world around it, even though the location is so isolated. And to me, that makes it great sci-fi. Marky Mark. Oh... I love this movie. I I have I've grown up with this movie because my dad also loved this movie and we just watched it all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh oof. It's just it's so thematic and like heavy and oof. Jason left me nothing to gawk over. It's uh it's tough. It's just oof. It just just off. <laughs> Oof. Official can we, can we edit all those together? together? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 whoops. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, it. Ooh. Oh, that's a solid two. Ooh. Stop. Um, oh boy. Do you have any more oofs there? Um, oof. <laughs> Colin, um, hopefully this... a, more, a more coherent Colin. <laughs> as yeah. soon as he went, um, I was waiting for. <laughs> yeah, this this movie actually is is really exceptional because it, I like a movie that doesn't cover just one genre. It was covered multiple at one time: uh, science fiction, uh, mystery, uh, horror. It's it's all there. Um, Diabetes. Diabetes. Romantic comedy. Uh, in terms of it being science fiction, I would say it's great science fiction. Fantastic science fiction. Uh, you, you see a spaceship in the ice. You see uh, you see an alien. And especially the, uh, the science that Wilford Brimley is conducting <laughs> in that laboratory is very, very fiction. Oh, it's God, science God. fiction. It's great science fiction. At the end of the day. No, I... I truly do love this movie. So, uh, if anyone else has, uh, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, 
We didn't spoil anything for you, so... Actually, yeah, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't even mention which characters are left at the end. Wow, that's a first! <laughs> no characters died, everybody got out of fine. No, they, all they figured out who it was, and they got in before anybody else got hurt. But, wow. And then once the puppies were born, it just really became a feel-good film. 101 Thingmations. <laughs> I heard this was actually a prequel to Love Actually. See, I heard it, Actually, was, it was a sequel to Balto. I can see that. Yep. Sequel to Balto, prequel to Love Actually. All still works in the horror, science, sci-fi yep. genre. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, all right, boys and girls. I think that's all we got time for. So, uh, yeah, cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Pass me the whiskey. Print!